Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School right here in the heart of Chicago. I pray that you find hope and peace in the message of Christ and Him crucified for you in your life right now. Thank you for listening. And please, if you'd like to support the mission going on right here, uh, please go to our webpage, stjames-lutheran.org to donate. Thank you. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's fitting that today, on this Sunday of the church year, we have a story that seems like a typical family encounter. Many of you probably just wrapped up hosting your family gathering for Christmas and are maybe uh, excited to have a little bit of rest and quiet once again in the house. But overall, Christmas is a time that centrally grounds us in shared happy moments of family time spent together with one another. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. That's part of the joy of this season. And I think that's how we read the story of Jesus being presented in the temple. We think of it as, once again, a family gathering going through the ritual and tradition of this particular family from Nazareth. The parents here seem to be doing that exact thing, following what's prescribed according to their religious tradition. Even more than that, you can picture the joy of this kind of gathering. Everybody gathering together to see the baby that was just born, very excited to meet the new little one. And we do similar kinds of things, right? We have family gatherings around important moments in our lives all the time. When a baby is born, we want to go see that child, be there for the baptism, be a part of that kind of connection with this new child. And when we engage this text... That's how we think of this section of Jesus' life, as just a family story, right? Little baby Jesus being dedicated to God just as he would in a baptism. But this text is driving at a lot more than just a story of this particular family. Because what God is trying to tell us here is about the fundamentals of our faith. Where is he located? Where can God's presence be found? And in order to really digest this, to get at the heart of what our text is trying to tell us, we have to think all the way back to the beginning of Advent. In Advent, there is a famous reading from the prophet Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament era. In fact, he was the last prophet to speak God's word to his people. And in Malachi, we hear this prophecy that behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. What does this sound like? Well, part of it sounds like what we've been doing throughout the Advent season. We're preparing for the birth of Christ. John the Baptist is that great Advent figure going before us in order to prepare the way of the Lord, to get us ready for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and to prepare our hearts for the reality of this birth, God becoming man, taking on flesh in the birth of Jesus Christ. So not only has the messenger prepared the way by the time we get to this point in the Christmas season, but now we see greater realities are unfolding. God has tabernacled, dwelt with his people by becoming man, becoming just like us. And now, 
we see the final part of this unfold. The Lord has indeed suddenly come to his temple, but how does this happen? He's brought there by his parents, by Mary and Joseph. They have brought the baby Jesus to the temple. There's something really strange about this idea, although sometimes we don't really catch it. I always ask the middle schoolers, where should we expect God to be? And if we're learning about an Old Testament story, they would say, in the temple. If we talk about today, right, is where would God be expected to be found? They say, thankfully, in the church. We would expect God to be there. But was this always the case for God's people? And the answer is actually a resounding no. For a while, the answer was yes. As the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, they could follow God's presence in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They could depend and know where God would be. Indeed, for a time, they knew that God would be in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was located. There is God's presence, pretty easy to figure out and point reliably to where God was going to be found. And later on, it was even more clear. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. So if you wanted to know where God could be found, you knew where he was, there in the temple. But something changed. After Malachi, God stopped speaking. He was silent for years and years and years. Even more than this, the prophet Ezekiel records that the glory of the Lord departed the temple. Things had become so disordered and so broken within Israel that God's presence withdrew from the temple. This would have been shocking. It would have challenged everything that the Israelites knew to be true. Certain things become uncertain. Worry sets in. Anxiety sets in. Are we still God's people? Is his forgiveness for me? Will he ever speak to us again? They must have been wondering if God's presence would return at all. A real source of anxiety for this people. And for centuries, they were left seemingly abandoned. They were left feeling as though their own sin had caused God to depart, never to return again. This is a time of, we could say, spiritual testing and trial. Where are we to look in times of despair and hopelessness? It's with that thought in mind that we should approach our text for today, approach this story of Simeon and Anna. Why? Because every single year, this text reminds us where God is. Our reality is the Lord has indeed returned to his temple. His presence has come to be among his people once again. This is the thing here in our story today that all those Old Testament saints were dreaming of, longing for, praying about, hoping for. The glory of the Lord returns and fills the temple, but not in a way that we would expect. You see, God's return to the temple comes not in the form of that glorious Shekinah cloud that filled the temple. Instead, God humbles himself and becomes a baby, one who's able to be swaddled, cared for, laid in a manger. There is the presence of the Lord in the child Jesus. So God's glorious presence returns, thanks be to God, but in a way that is paradoxical. The Almighty is now able to be touched, grasped, and loved. 
And notice that Simeon, because of the lens of faith, is able to understand what's going on. Simeon takes Jesus up in his arms, holds the Christ child, and remarks, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I have made it to the finish line. My eyes have seen your salvation. I've held the Savior in my arms. And this joyous revelation is now given to all people, to the Gentiles, to the Israelites, to all the world. There is the Christ child given for you. So Simeon's beautiful confession of faith grounds us, reminds us of what the Christmas season, which we are still in the midst of, is actually all about. It's not about sentimentality or that kind of hallmark vibe. It's not about family occasions and gatherings, as pleasant and fun as those might be. Instead, it's about us, the church, standing in awe of what our God has accomplished for you. Not only has our God returned to be with his people, to care for us, but he, in fact, has set about saving his people from their sins. This salvation that has been accomplished will happen in the life and death of Christ Jesus. And in fact, the glory that we now see and perceive is resurrection glory, the glory of eternal life, which is the reality given to each and every Christian. Now, the great irony is who understands what in today's text? Simeon and Anna get exactly what's happening right away. Mary and Joseph, on the other hand, marvel at what has just been told to them. In fact, when they go to the temple, Mary and Joseph are thinking that they are the ones fulfilling the law, that they are consecrating Jesus, making him holy, setting him apart, giving the appropriate sacrifices, two turtle doves, following the law. But what happens in Christ Jesus is a great reversal of this theme. They are not the ones fulfilling the law for Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the one fulfilling the law for them. In Leviticus, two turtle doves are prescribed for the sacrifice. But there's an alternative given. If you are not of the same class as Mary and Joseph, if you're a bit wealthier, you could bring a lamb to the temple. And Mary and Joseph, unbeknownst to them, have brought the very lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world here to the temple, ready to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. See, Jesus becomes that precious sacrifice on Good Friday. He is the one consecrating all of mankind through his own work, life, death, and resurrection. Mary and Joseph, you and I, can rightly rejoice, marvel at the fact that even as a baby, there is a hint of what God will accomplish upon the cross. The new temple of the church receives this promise week in and week out. This good news that the perfect sacrifice has been made on our behalf. It is complete and it is freely given. Now, I think in this text, there's a pattern of discipleship, a model of what we should do, right? And that comes in the prophetess Anna. A prophet is simply someone who applies the word of the Lord. And following God's return to the temple, what does Anna do? She begins to preach the good news. She tells other people about the redemption that is even now happening in Jerusalem. Again, we have to wonder, how does she recognize this happening 
in a baby, in this child presented to her. But faith understands this is who Jesus is in his very being. Jesus' life from conception to birth to life to ministry to death to resurrection is all about caring for the church, rescuing his beloved people from sin and death, and once again giving them the very crown of life. That's who our God is. Jesus is all about the good news that Anna is now preaching to everyone who will listen. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Israel. Think about being someone who is worried about whether or not they have been abandoned, whether something is broken, whether or not God is actually going to speak to you again, and apply that to your everyday experience. I would hazard to guess that all of us, all of us in this room, have gotten into some sort of fight, conflict, argument, whatever it is, where we pushed things too far. We said words that we feel we can't take back. We say words that we cut the other person to their core. And think about the fear that maybe echoes in our ear, wondering whether or not we've permanently broken something. And in that moment, we ask ourselves, is God's forgiveness really for me, for my sin, not just sin in the abstract? That thought that I think we can relate to was what God's people wrestled with for years. They didn't know if God would be back, if that relationship would be restored, if it would be the same as it was before. And yet in Christ Jesus, something far greater than we could have ever expected happens. Jesus tells us, my forgiveness is for you. My grace transforms your life in particular. My grace is on full display because God's presence has returned to be with his people, and in the flesh of Jesus now go the hopes and fears of all of God's people. He's made of the same stuff as us now. God has become man so that we might once again become like God, forgiven, full of grace, holy, set apart, all for the sake of Christ. This gospel promise isn't the end. Instead, it grounds our everyday reality. We live in this grace. We embody this grace. Jesus rose again, defeating your enemy of sin, death, and the devil, guaranteeing that we do not have to worry about where God's presence is. God's presence is with his people. How do we know this? Jesus tells us his promises are true. God does the things he says he's going to do. Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am, our Lord says. Whenever you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me, Jesus reminds us. And most importantly, Jesus tells us that he is in our gathering in real, concrete ways. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. Jesus says, this is my blood shed for you. There is Jesus inviting us to the table, preparing a rich feast in front of us, one that gives us his forgiveness and grace week in and week out, freely offered. He has paid the cost and given it to you free of charge. It's New Year's Eve, and I think sometimes this time of the year, 
we think about new practices. What are we going to do? Something maybe like add a new book to our repertoire. We're going to read more in the year ahead. We're going to work out more. We're going to lose those 15 pounds. Whatever the case is, we like to adopt new practices on New Year's. And I would encourage you to adopt spiritual habits, spiritual practices as well as we forge into the new year. Resolve to be where God promises to be. The joy of the Christian life is we don't have to wonder where he is or try to figure out where he is in the world around us. He is where he says he's going to be. He is in his word and promises. He is in his gifts, which are offered to us each and every week within the confines of the church. So where is God's presence? It is clearly, clearly on display. It is all around you in the divine service. It is all around you in the life of the Christian. It is in His Word. It is in the Lord's Supper. It is in holy baptism. The real presence grounds who we are as Christians, that God has returned to us. This is what we call worship in the new temple, which is the church, the gathering of you, the saints of God, who have been called out of darkness and into His glorious light. And the great joy of today's service is having received the body and blood of Christ, we join in the same confession as St. Simeon all those years ago. We hold Christ Jesus, taste and see that the Lord is good, and we too can say, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. As we leave this church, we are filled with God's grace. We are grounded in the promise of new life that will ground us in this new year. And in fact, we, like Anna, can now preach the good news to those around us. Today's Sunday in the church year is all about this simple, simple fact that God has returned to be with his people and the greatest gift that we can be given and that we can give others is the fact that Jesus Christ is freely found week in and week out in his word, in his promises, providing pastoral care to you so that you would know you are forgiven Eternal life is yours. You have the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.